Sage Mind, it's good to see you this morning. For those of you that were thinking you were going to see Jay Louder this morning, unfortunately he could not make it, and, uh, and he's going to be rescheduled for September the 5th. And so if you want to mark your calendars, and so you're stuck with the backup guy today, that's me. Um, I want you to turn in your Bibles today to Matthew chapter 8, verse 28. Matthew chapter 8, verse 28. And we'll get there in, in just a minute. We're going to be looking at a story that's found in both Matthew and Mark. And it's a story of Jesus healing a demon-possessed guy. And when you, when you just look at it and sort of skim through it, you think, okay, Jesus healed a demon-possessed guy. Cool story, neat story, and you move on. But when you dig down into it and start studying it, it's one of these stories that really has some gold in it. There's some profound truths about God in this story that I love. I'm excited about teaching it to you. Now, everybody look at me here. I want you to catch this because it's sort of the thesis of the sermon here today. One of the primary things we're going to see today, and and one of these profound truths that we're going to see today is that Jesus Christ has absolute authority and he has absolute power over Satan and his demonic forces. And you think, well, of course he does. I don't know if you're like me, but I forget that sometimes. That our God has absolute authority. He has absolute power over evil. And so I chose this text because I think it's going to be a good time to remind ourselves on this Sunday morning, um, July 18th, right now, as we speak, that Jesus Christ is on his throne. I mean, right now, he's God, he's on his throne, he's alive, and nothing that any of us are going through, and nothing that any of us will go through is outside of his control or is bigger than his power. And this story is a great reminder of that. Now, when I, before I jump into the, to the text today, I want to do something. We're, again, we're looking at a the story of a demon-possessed guy, I want to take a minute and I want to talk for a second about demons. Let's do a quick study here of demons and specifically, let's talk about um, what demons are and why we should believe in them. And so first question, what what are demons? The Bible describes demons as uh, these evil spiritual beings. They're, They're evil spiritual beings that their kind of goal in life is to thwart the work of God here on earth. And they're most likely fallen angels that fell with Satan at his fall, and now they do Satan's bidding. And a lot of people in modern society, a modern Western society, really, when, when they hear talk about demons, they think to themselves, well, most likely they're not real, that those are the things of horror movies or ancient fairy tales And even as believers, I'm starting to see in our culture that even believers have a tendency either not to believe in demons or to dismiss them altogether. And so real quick, before we jump in our text, I want to give you four quick observations about why demons are real and we need to believe in their existence. Um, I don't have these on the screen, so if you're taking notes, here's number one, um, why demons are real, why we should believe in their existence. Number one is Jesus believed in demons. Amen? I mean, we just end it right there as far as I'm concerned. But Jesus addressed, he talked about, 
and he talked to demons multiple times. In his three years uh, of ministry, there are several instances where he is um, he's talking about demons. He's talking to demons, which we're going to see today. Uh, we see him cast out demons. We're going to see that also today. And so number one, Jesus most assuredly believed in the existence of, of demons. Number two, the Apostle Paul, who was arguably the most influential writer of the New Testament, he believed in demons. Don't turn there. Just listen. If, a, lot of, a lot of scripture today, too. And so just hang with me. Ephesians 6.12 Paul says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Who are we wrestling against, Paul? But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So Paul is crystal clear that we are in a battle, uh, that we have an enemy we are in a battle against this enemy, and this battle against this enemy that we are in is against spiritual forces of evil. Spiritual forces, not flesh and blood, but spiritual forces of evil. He's clearly talking about Satan and demons. Number three, I just believe in demons because one of the reasons people, I believe, dismiss the reality of demon possession in today's society is because of our modern advancements in uh, psychology, and medicine. And uh, people are quick to say that what people in back in the day used to attribute as demon possession is now most likely epilepsy or mental illness. But I want you to look at Matthew 4:24. It's an interesting verse. It says, So his fame spread through all Syria, that's talking about Jesus, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains. Those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. Did you notice what just happened there? The Bible makes a very clear distinction between being sick, having epilepsy, and being demon-possessed. The, the New Testament writers were keenly aware of the difference in those things. And the Bible makes a distinction between them. And so it's entirely possible that in modern society, what we're doing is we are dismissing folks that might be dealing with spiritual forces of evil and we dismiss it because we think they have mental illness or that sort of thing. I've got a quote, excuse me, that I want to read to you. It's from a, an African theologian named uh, Tokunbo Edemio. And listen, he says, demon possession is very common in Africa today. The influence of centuries of rationalism has left many Europeans and Americans reluctant to accept the possibility of demon possession. They explain it away using modern theories of psychology and psychoanalysis. Now watch what he says. He says, we in Africa do not have any such difficulties with the idea. And apparently, neither did Jesus and his disciples. And so if you ever get a chance, I want you to talk to an African pastor or a South American pastor, if you ever get the chance, I want you to ask him a simple question. Do you believe in demon possession? And everyone that I've ever met will say, of course. You ask them why. And they say, well, there are things that I have seen with my own eyes that I simply cannot explain with mental illness. And which brings us to the fourth reason that I think we need to believe that demons are real. It's because your pastor believes demons are real. 
And I have seen some things with my own eyes that I would attribute to demon possession. I'm going to tell you one story. It's kind of funny looking back on it now. But it wasn't funny in the moment when it happened. Back in 2006, which doesn't sound like a long time ago, but that's a long time ago, people. That's 15 years ago. 15 years ago. Back in 2006, I got invited with a group of young pastors. I was young back then, um, pastoring, growing churches, and they invited us to Hawaii, suffering for the Lord. They invited us to Hawaii, and we got mentored for two weeks by a megachurch guy in Hawaii. Um, And so it it was amazing. Well, the church, um, the Hawaiian church that we were hanging out at was having a huge baptism service at the beach. And so this pastor invited, there's about 20 young pastor guys. He invited all of us to come down to the beach with them and help him baptize folks in his church because they had about 70 or 80 folks that were getting baptized that day. And so pastors part, partnered up and we all walked out into the water and then people lined up to go get baptized. So my partner was actually Matt Chandler. Matt Chandler is pastor of the Village Church in Dallas, which they have about 14,000 folks and and uh, we were young, didn't know what we were doing back then, still don't, but uh, we were together. And one would get on one side, I'm, Matt would get on one side, I'd get on the other, people would come and we'd baptize them. And about the fourth or fifth person to get baptized was this little girl. When I say little, she was probably 19, 20. She was just a tiny girl. She looked like she was older teenager or a young adult. And we, she gets between the two of us. And I can't remember if we said anything. Surely we said something to her before that. But anyway, I have one arm, hand on her back. Matt has one arm, hand on the back. And we begin to lean her down in the water. And as soon as we did that, her arms went bam and grab, grabs Matt and I's arm. Before we can get her into the water, she gets up. She has this wild, demonic look in her eyes. She looks over at Chandler. She looks over at me. And in this evil, deep, manly voice that literally sent chills down my spine. Have you ever heard the phrase hair stand on your back, back of your neck? I've never had that happen in my life. I'm like, what does that even mean? Like, one, I don't have a lot of hair. But I'm telling you, when this voice came out of her mouth, I got chills down my, my spine. Hair went on the back of my neck. She looks at us and she, in this deep, evil voice, says, do not put me in the water. And I said, you got it, lady. And I (laughs) I took off. And I turned around. And Chandler's following with me, man. We got out of there. That's a true story. I said, you got it, lady. I'm out of here. Went and found the pastor. I was like, there's something you need to deal with over there. Jesus believed in demons. Apostle Paul believed in demons intelligent, educated people from other countries believe in demons. I believe in demons. I think we need to have just a foundational belief that they are real. Now, even though demons are real, even though they're powerful, even though they're scary, which I discovered, um, at the same time, we need to have a proper perspective on these uh, these beings called demons. And I want to read you one more quote. This is by C.S. Lewis. He's, uh, it's from his book, The Screwtape Letters, and he's speaking about demons. He calls them devils, but they're demons. C.S. Lewis says, there's two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe 
and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them, they themselves are equally pleased by both heirs. And so C.S. Lewis makes the argument that while it's wrong not to believe in demons, at the same time, we don't need to be afraid of them. We don't need to freak out about them. We don't need to have an unnecessary, unhealthy interest in them. And here's my question, why? Why does C.S. Lewis say that? Because here's the reality. If demonic forces are real, and I am convinced that they are, if they're powerful and they're scary, and they are, and if they're actively trying to take us out, and they are, then why should you and I not be afraid of them? And it goes back to the primary point of the text today. Point number one, here's why we're not afraid, because Jesus has ultimate power and he has ultimate authority over evil. Now, before we look in the text, which is gonna show us some really fun, really cool examples of Jesus having ultimate power, and ultimate authority over evil. <clears throat> I want to give you some context of what's going on in this story. So up to the point, up to this point, Jesus has been healing people. And this is back in the day before hospitals. And so God comes along, he's actually healing people. He's drawn a crowd. So he's drawn these massive crowds. He's trying to get away from the crowd. So him and the disciples get into a boat and they decide they're going to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. <clears throat> this is that famous story where they get in the boat they're crossing over, and this huge storm just blows up really, really quickly. It's dark. Um, the wind is howling. The waves are coming up over the boat. The boat is beginning to take on water, and the disciples are flipping out. They are deathly afraid. Now, you folks that grew up in church, if you remember the story, what was Jesus doing during this massive storm? He was taking a nap. He was asleep. He's at the back of the boat. He's sound asleep. The disciples start screaming, Jesus, do you not care that we're about to die? He wakes up. Now, everybody, look at me. This is really cool when you think about it. Jesus wakes up. He walks to the front of the boat. And Jesus starts talking to the storm. Let that sink into you for a second. He's, he starts talking to a storm. You know that old thing that I, I forget who talked about it, but Jesus is either, either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. He's one of the three. It's true. I don't know if this has ever dawned on you, but you don't talk to storms unless you're bananas or you're God. Jesus walks to the front of the boat. The man starts talking to the storm. He says, very calmly, storm, peace, be still. Storm calms down. The disciples jaw drop. And then one of them says, who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? It's a good question. Who is this man? Even the wind and the waves obey him, okay? Now, the point of that story right there is that Jesus is the man that the wind and the waves obey and that Jesus is someone that has ultimate power and ultimate authority over, over creation, 
over nature and over the storms in our lives. That's what you see in that story. He's got ultimate power and authority over nature, over creation, and the storms in our lives. Okay, now, in the very next story, in the very next thing, once they cross the Sea of Galilee, what we're going to see is that Jesus doesn't just have ultimate power and authority over creation, nature, and storms in our lives, but what we're about to see is that Jesus also has ultimate power and authority over evil. All right, now, real quickly, the same same story shows up in both Matthew and Mark. They they take them from two different angles. Mark, I believe, focuses on one of the demon-possessed guys. Matthew talks about how there's two. Um, We're going to look at parts of both, but it's the same exact story. They're looking at it from different angles. So let's turn to Matthew chapter 8, verse 28, quickly, and let's look at it. And when he came to the other side, and that's the other side of the Sea of Galilee, they just, Jesus just calmed the storm. When he came to the other side, to the country of Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, and they were so fierce that no one could pass that way. So Jesus calms the storm. They go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus gets out of the boat, and immediately these two demon-possessed guys walk up, and Matthew describes them this way. He says they were so fierce that no one would go by there. Now, I looked that up in the Greek, and it's a little more descriptive in the Greek language. But that phrase, so fierce, means exceedingly dangerous. Not sure why they didn't just use that. But Matthew's saying, look, these guys were so dangerous because they're demon-possessed that nobody would even go near those tombs. Okay, now the Gospel of Mark, again, describes the same encounter where demon-possessed guys meet Jesus right after he calms the storm. But listen, this time when Jesus and Mark, when Jesus comes walking up, Jesus immediately, when he meets these demon-possessed guys, Jesus starts talking to the demons. And he asks the demons their name. Let's look at Mark chapter 5, verse 9. And I'm going to kind of going back and forth, so if you just want to watch, you can. If you've taken notes, Mark 5, 9. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, this is the demon replying, my name is Legion, for we are many. So again, Jesus walks up, these two demon-possessed guys come up, Jesus starts speaking and uh, asks the demons their name, and the demon says, we're not just one demon, but we're a legion of demons. Now, what does that mean? Legion was a term, as a Roman Empire term that meant somewhere between 3,500 and 8,000 soldiers. That was a legion. And so the point is, this poor guy was not possessed with a demon. That would have been bad enough. This guy is possessed with between 3,500 and 8,000 demons. I don't know what this guy did to deserve that. That's a lot of demons. So Matthew describes these guys as they were so fierce right, that nobody would pass away. But again, Mark goes into a little bit more detail. And I want you to listen to just how fierce and exceedingly dangerous these guys were. Look at Mark 5, 3. It says, he lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore. Not even with a chain. Mark 5, 4, he says, for he, he had often been bound with shackles and with chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. And I think the last part is key here. He says, no one had the strength to subdue him. And so Matthew just sums it up and says, these guys are dangerous. But Mark starts telling a story about how dangerous they are. Supposedly the men of the town 
And by the way, in the next verse, it talks about how they would shriek and scream all night. So the guys in the town are trying to comfort their children who hear the screeching and the screaming of these demon-possessed guys. No, it's okay, but they get sick of it because their kids are scared. So them and a bunch of buddies get together and they get some chains and they get some shackles and they say, all right, we're gonna go tie these guys up at least. So they go to the tombs. They sneak up on this guy. They jump on him, somehow overpower him, tie up him with chains, put shackles on his arms, step back, think, finally, my kids can go to sleep. And the demon-possessed guy stands up and goes, boom, and breaks the chains. And they probably did what I did on the Hawaiian beach, like, we're out, bye. And they never went by there ever again. These demon-possessed guys were so crazy, they were so powerful, and they were so dangerous, nobody would even go by there until a man named Jesus came walking up. And through this interaction with Jesus, we see five crystal clear examples of Jesus' authority and power over evil. They're awesome. I learned so much in the study of this. But we see five clear examples of Jesus' ultimate power over authority and evil. We're gonna walk through these five examples real quick. We're gonna apply it, we'll be done. So here's example number one. The demons call Jesus the son of God. Matthew 8, 28. And when he came to the other side, to the country of Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way. So everybody's scared of him. But Jesus walks up and watches how the demons react. 8, 29. It says, and behold, they cried out, what do you have to do with us, O son of God? So when these 8,000 or so demons encounter Jesus, before Jesus ever says a word to them, they know exactly who he is. They know exactly who he is. They don't ask his name. They immediately recognize him. And they don't call him by his name. They call him by his title. They call him by his title. Demons immediately recognize Jesus and then they confess with their mouths that this wasn't just some new cool rabbi from Nazareth, but that he was in fact the son of the living God. And they knew that. That interaction right there explains what James is talking about in James uh, chapter two, verse 19, where James says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and they shudder. Okay, so that's example number one. They immediately know who he is before Jesus says a word. And two, they don't call him by his name. They call him by his title, the son of God. Here's example number two of Jesus' ultimate power and authority over evil. The demons bow down before him. Mark 5, 6. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. That's simple, but that's fascinating to me. The Bible does describe that Satan and God, us and Satan, were in this cosmic battle. Everybody look at it. And yet when a legion of demons, when a group of 8,000 demons enter into the presence of Jesus, they don't bow up, they don't talk smack, they don't even try to fight when 8,000 demons get near the Son of God, they hit the floor. They immediately bow down before him. 
Not much of a battle, is it? That's example number two. Example number three, and this is hands down my favorite one. I love this one. The demons are so afraid of Jesus, they cry out to God for help. Look at Mark chapter five, verse seven. And crying out with a loud voice, he says, what do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God. Do not torment me. When they enter the presence of the Lord, not only do they hit the floor, but they're so afraid of Jesus, they cry out to God the Father for help. That's fascinating to me. <clears throat> because when you're in trouble, say, so when you're in trouble and you're in so much trouble that you need to cry out to someone for help, who do you cry out to? You cry out to somebody that actually has the power to help you. You cry out to somebody that's stronger than you and that has the ability and the power to help you. If you were walking, if you're a man and you were walking down a dark alley one night and you had your wife with you and one of your buddies who's a Navy SEAL. And he's not just any Navy SEAL, but he's like SEAL Team 6. He's tip of the spear, best of the best. And you're walking down an alley and all of a sudden this group of guys is coming the other way and it becomes clear really fast that those guys are gonna try to hurt you. In that moment, who do you ask for help to? Your wife or your Navy SEAL buddy? You don't look at your wife and go, all right, girl, let's do this, let's go, right? You look at your Navy SEAL buddy and say, hey, I need your help. Help, Navy SEAL buddy. We're in trouble. Everybody look at me, check this out. I want you to notice that when Jesus comes walking up, the demons don't cry out to Satan for help, they cry out to God. Isn't that awesome? Jesus comes walking up, they're like, uh, God, hey God, help God! They don't cry out to Satan. They cry out to our Heavenly Father. Here's what that teaches us. Satan and God are not equals. They're not. And this story clearly shows us who has ultimate power in that battle and who has ultimate power of the universe. It's our God. Example number four of Jesus' ultimate power and authority over evil is real straightforward. The demons know and confess that Jesus is ultimately going to destroy them. The demons are keenly aware that they have a limited amount of time to do their thing and then Jesus is going to destroy them. Watch. Matthew 8, 29. It says, And behold, they cry out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? What time are they talking about? They're talking about Judgment Day. The day where the Scripture tells us that Jesus is going to throw Satan and he's going to throw his demons into the lake of fire. And so these demons, they know that day's coming. They know for a stone-cold fact there's coming a day where this man that they just encountered, that they know who he is, that they're bowed down before him, they're crying out to God for help. They know there's coming a day when he's going to destroy him. And they're, so they're, they're crying out like whiny kids, Jesus, please don't kill us now. Last one. And this is, this is another really interesting one that... I thought, man, that's so good. Example number five of Jesus' ultimate power and authority over evil. Jesus doesn't call on a higher power to cast out the demons. Now think about that. Every single time in Near Eastern religion that 
someone cast out demons. And by the way, there are tons of examples in Near Eastern religion, in ancient Near Eastern religion, uh, in literature, ancient literature. There's all these examples of people trying to cast out demons. And every single time you see it in ancient literature, every single solitary time, when this person or group of people tries to cast out a demon, they always call on a higher power to do it. Always. Every time. There's a really hilarious story. It's in Acts chapter 19. There's a group of seven Jewish exorcists. This is one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible. There's seven Jewish exorcists. They've obviously heard that there's this rabbi named Jesus that's casting out demons because Paul's been preaching about him. And so these seven Jewish exorcists encounter a demon-possessed guy. The demon-possessed guy is standing there. One of the seven Jewish exorcists looks at him and he calls on a higher power. He says, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I demand that you get out. And so that shows us that the Jewish guy didn't know Jesus, didn't have the power of Jesus inside of him. He just heard that Jesus was powerful. So he says, the name of Jesus, who Paul talked about, demon, you get out. And then maybe the funniest line of the whole Bible, the demon starts talking and says, I've heard of Jesus. I know who he is. And I've heard of Paul, but who are you? (laughs) And then in an equally funny verse, the scripture literally says, that um, the demon-possessed guy leapt on the, the seven um, exorcist guys. The demon overpowered them, and the scripture literally says the Jewish exorcist ran away naked and wounded. The demon beat him so bad his clothes fell off, right? Now, the point is, is that when you roll up on a demon, important safety tip, you got to call on a power that's more powerful than you to cast him out. Because these guys learn the hard way, you can't just roll up without some extra power. But I want you to watch how Jesus cast out these demons because it's literally unheard of in ancient literature. Matthew 8.30. Now I heard many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, if you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And then verse 32, and Jesus said to them, go. And they came out and went into the pigs. Church, when Jesus casts out demons, he does not call on a higher power. He doesn't stop and pray. He doesn't turn his eyes to heaven for help. He looks at the demons and he says one word. He says, go, and they immediately obeyed him. Don't let anybody ever tell you, don't let anybody ever, 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 ever tell you that Jesus was just some good moral teacher or that he was just another prophet because this is one of the most definitive places in all of the Bible where Jesus is making it absolutely positively clear that he is God. Because when he casts out demons, he doesn't call on a higher power. He personally makes the command and they obey. And when he did that, Jesus was definitively showing the world that there was no higher power for him to call on. Love that. Jesus has absolute authority and absolute power over the evil that we might encounter in our lives. And so let me end today. Let's give us a little bit of application. We'll be done. What does this mean for us, right? 
Well, again, we've learned two things. Jesus has absolute authority and power over nature, creation, and the storms that come into our life. And we've learned that Jesus has absolute power and absolute authority over all of evil. So here's what I think it means to us. I know for a fact that many of you are walking right now through storms. There's a storm in your life. You're experiencing the storm of COVID. You're experiencing the storm of cancer. You're experiencing the storm of a loved one with dementia. You're experiencing the storm of the death of a loved one. You're experiencing the storm of financial difficulties or difficulties at work. You're experiencing the storm of a difficult marriage. Right now, you are walking through a storm. And the question that you may be asking is the question that the disciples asked Jesus, do you care that we're about to die? Still others of you are walking through and experiencing evil. Maybe the demonic forces of evil. You're experiencing the evil of Satan through someone that's slandering you. Experiencing the evil of Satan through an influence on a child or his influence on a child or a grandchild that's rebelling and running from God. Experiencing the evil of Satan through the evil systems and governments and organizations of this country and this world that are hostile to God and his people. Well, here's the one really and only application I want you to take away from this time that we've had together, is that if you're experiencing any of those things today, or maybe you're experiencing some stuff that I didn't even talk about, I want you to know that there are some emotions that you can feel as you're going through storms and you're experiencing evil that are completely valid and they're completely right and they're godly for you to feel. One of them is sadness. I want you to know that if you're experiencing cancer or you've lost a loved one, or there's some really difficult storm you're going through, sadness is a legitimate emotion for you to feel. Sadness is all through the Psalms. It's legitimate. There's another emotion I think it's completely okay and valid for you to feel, and that's grieving. Guys, I'm getting hot up here. I'm gonna take these off for a second. But I have a friend, his wife of decades, I think they've been married around 50 years. His wife has just come down with dementia. It's getting bad. I love this guy. He is a sweet, sweet guy. And I want you to know something. He has always been so in love with this girl and she him. And that's a place where she often doesn't remember him. And so he's beyond sadness at that point. He's grieving, y'all with me? That's a legitimate emotion to feel. Jesus grieved. When he lost his friend, Jesus wept. That was him grieving the loss of his friend. Here's one more. That I think is completely legitimate an emotion is completely legitimate for us to feel, and that's anger. One of the most interesting things I've learned over the last few years is that anger in and of itself is not a sin. That when the emotion of anger comes up in you, that in and of itself is not sinful. And we know that because of Ephesians 4. Paul says in Ephesians 4, be angry, but do not sin. So he's saying anger is legitimate. If you don't feel angry, something's wrong with you. Just don't sin in your anger. That's when you feel anger because something has happened to you. You've been slandered. You're experiencing evil. You're experiencing injustice. It's when you then go and sin against those people that that's when you've crossed the line. But here's where I'm landing the plane today, guys. I want you to know something. What I am seeing through the story and what I'm taking away from these two stories is that there's emotion. There is an emotion that no matter what you're going through, no matter what you're going through, 
that as a child of the living God, you should never allow to control you or to fall prey to as a believer and a follower of Christ, and that is fear. It's fear. Why? Why is fear never an emotion that that the child of God should ever be overcome by? Well, I can ask another question. Why is the number one commandment that was repeated the most often in the entirety of the Bible, do not fear? Why is that over and over and over again? Jesus, the Lord says, do not be afraid. Why? Psalms 23 tells us why. Psalms 23, 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I don't know where the valley of the shadow of death is, but it sounds bad. Y'all with me? The psalmist is saying, I'm walking, I'm, I'm not on the mountaintop right now, I'm in the valley. And it's not just any valley, but it's the valley of the shadow of death. And so as I'm walking through this crazy valley, I'm walking through a shadow and it's not just any shadow, it is the shadow of death. I am in the worst valley of my life. And he says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, watch what he says, he says, I will fear no evil. I will fear none. I will fear no evil. Why? Everybody say it with me. Because you are with me. I'm walking in the valley. I'm in not just any valley. I'm in the valley of the shadow of death. I'm not going to be afraid. And the reason that I'm not going to be afraid is because there's somebody with me as I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Not a Navy SEAL. It's the one that created the valleys and the ones that created the mountains. You may be walking through a storm, but you are walking through that storm with the one that the wind and the waves obey. You may be experiencing evil, but you're walking through that with the one when the demons, thousands of demons encounter, they hit the floor. They're so afraid of him that they're crying out to God for help. I'll end with this. Bible never promises us, ever, ever, ever. Jesus never promises us that he will keep us from storms and he will keep us from evil. But what he does promise us is that the one that has power and authority over storms and the one that has power and authority over all evil, he will walk through them with you. He'll be with you every step of the way. And so the next time you are tempted to fear or you sense fear coming up into your life, it happens to me, I want you to believe and I want you to speak this truth over that emotion coming up in you. I want you to believe that that is not from God. It's not from the Lord. That's from the heart of Satan. And so you believe and speak this truth over that fear that today, even though I am walking through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for my God is with me.